there's a big difference between being active and being busy. I feel that busyness is a complex, a psychological complex that comes over you, not because you're doing too much, but because of the way you're imagining your life and the world around you. So you can be you can be very active in your life and be empty. You can do it. You can bring emptiness into everything you do, but still be very active. But if you're busy and feeling overwhelmed by the busyness, that sounds to me like something needs to be emptied out a bit. Welcome to Men This Way, the podcast for every man who seeks to live his deepest purpose in life, who's committed to showing up fully and giving his unique gifts to the world. Because if not you, then who? I'm your host and fellow journeyman, Brian Reeves. Brian with a Y, Reeves. Men, this way. Do you ever feel overburdened by the busyness our modern lives require? Do you intentionally create spaciousness, emptiness in your daily life? Have you ever tasted real freedom in a moment of aimless being? Well, in this episode, my brilliant guest is a true wise elder, the New York Times bestselling author, Thomas Moore. And he and I mine these questions and more for wise insights that can make a meaningful difference in your life. In a world of many older men, but few true elders, Thomas Moore is indeed a true wise elder. He's the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Care of the Soul. And his new book is The Eloquence of Silence surprising wisdom in tales of emptiness. Now in his 82nd year of life, Thomas has been a Catholic monk, an accomplished musician, a university professor, and also a psychotherapist influenced deeply by Carl Jung and James Hillman. His work brings together spirituality, mythology, depth psychology, and the arts, emphasizing the importance of images and imagination. I'm super excited for you to listen in on our conversation today because while modern culture tends to avoid emptiness as much as possible, Thomas makes a compelling case for an easier, lighter way of moving through life by embracing the peace, calm, and spaciousness that emptiness offers. The Eloquence of Silence, his book, offers a collection of traditional stories and ideas about emptiness that explore the value of silence, empty space, and letting go. Moore draws on a variety of folk tales, literature, and age-old spiritual practices throughout his book to weave a tapestry of timeless wisdom simply to help us live more connected to our own daily lives. It's a deeply rich conversation, a conversation with a true, wise, and gentle elder, and I'm confident you'll enjoy and be served well by it. Now, before we dive in, I'm going to read today's recent podcast review left by C. Keel, K-I-E-H-L. If you're C. Keel, please contact me at support at ryanreeves.com and I'll give you free lifetime access to one of my relationship courses. And now I'm speaking to you listening to this podcast right now. Yes, you listening right now. You, I'm speaking to you <laughs> through time and space. If you would be so daring and generous as to take the time to leave a podcast review on your favorite podcast app and I read it on an upcoming episode, I'll give you free access to one of my life-changing courses too. All right, here we go. C. Keel. Everything about this podcast is right on point. 
I subscribed to this podcast a while back because I've always liked what Brian had to share and the things he's written, but only recently gotten around to actually listening to them. Man, do I wish I'd been listening to them all along. I can really relate to so many things he talks about, his experiences, and it's quickly become one of the most valuable things I listen to. His insights are wonderfully helpful and have changed a lot about the way I see myself as a man and the way I'm consciously choosing to show up as a man in my relationship with my partner. The audio quality is great, and Brian has a voice that's soothing and easy to listen to. Everything about Men This Way is right on point. See, Keel, thank you so much. I got to tell you, sometimes reading these reviews feels a little indulgent, and though it's super helpful. I, I do these episodes, I throw them over the fence, and I often don't know. People will often ask me, you know, how, how did the episode go when I do a recording? And I'll say, well, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I think it went great, but until I hear back from the people who actually listen to it, I never quite know what I've created. So again, your reviews uh, help in so many ways. And see, Keel, uh, thank you so much for your review uh, today. Please email me at support at brianreeves.com, brian with a Y, reeves.com, to get hooked up with free access to either my Love Sex Relationship Magic Program or the Boundaries Program, Relationships Suck Without Boundaries. And if you're not C. Keel, please write a podcast review on your favorite podcast app. And if I read yours on a future episode, you'll get free access to a course as well. I look forward to reading your review. Now, back to my conversation with Thomas Moore. Take a deep breath and stay present with us all the way through to the end of this episode of Men This Way. All right, let's dive. Mr. Thomas Moore, I want to call you Sir Thomas Moore, like a knight or something. I'm, I'm, I'm so honored to have you on Men This Way. I'm happy with Sir. <clears throat> okay, good. It feels right. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I, I don't have opportunity. This is a great tragedy, I think, of our age. I, I don't have opportunity, like many men, to to really be in the presence of, to be in conversation with, with true elders. And it just naturally, it feels good in my body to want to say, "Sir." You know, just so you know, that that feels good to me. Excellent. It, it feels it feels honoring. It feels appropriate. It feels right. I understand. Yeah. Well, again, I'm, I'm truly honored to have you on. Um, and again, I want to say Mr. Moore, but I'll call you Thomas. And Thomas. here's where I'd, I'd like to start. You know, Thomas, you're, so I, I got your book, Care of the Soul, right? That was your, was that your first book? No, but it was the first one that anyone read. Yeah. It, was, it was the breakthrough book. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I got that book. In, in the early 90s, it came out, I think, in 92. Yep, 92. 92. And I was a, you know, I was about 19. Uh, no, 92, I was, I think, just 18. I, I yeah. might have gotten it a couple of years after, but I was 19 or 20. And I very quickly, you know, and I, I know this more now in retrospect, I couldn't, I couldn't really, I couldn't access it. You know, I think of Rilke's Live the Questions quote, you know, try to love the questions themselves. Uh, you know, don't seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. Like I couldn't live what, what that book was revealing at that time. And, and by the way, I, I read in your, your new book, The Eloquence of Silence, that you created a little Rilke translation book for your family. I did, yes. Many, many years ago. Are there any copies of that still floating around? One. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I, 
I'll give you a million dollars for it. I don't have a million dollars, but I'm sure it's, it's priceless. It's priceless. Yeah. Well, here's where I'm going with this question, because, you know, over the course of your life journey, you've become a best-selling author of, of what, I, what I would call soul-inspired, soul-centric books. You're, you are a true wise elder to the world. You're a man that countless people look to for inspiration. You've been a university professor, a Catholic monk, a beloved and respected psychotherapist, and probably a million other amazing things. But I'm curious to, to know a bit about your youth, what you know, significant experience or event or influences really laid the foundation for the profound journey you have embarked upon to becoming you know, all, all that you have become and the man that you are today. That's a, that's a long story. I'll try to make it short. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we, uh, when I was young, the first thing that happened to me of real significance was I was, I used to go every Sunday when I was very young with my grandfather out on a boat and go fishing. And we usually went on a small pond, a small lake, what we call a pond here in New England. And this time we went on a big lake, Lake St. Clair, uh, just outside Detroit. And um, something happened, I don't know what, but the boat started to fill with water and it capsized and my grandfather saved me, but he drowned in the process. And that experience stays with me. I, it's mysterious. It's, I, I have to start with that because that was the first thing that happened. I think it had some impact. My family puts it, they say I was saved to do the work I'm mm. doing. You know, that's how they, that's their story about mm. it. It's not mine. Uh, but mine is more like uh, gave, put me in touch with death early on, which kind of sobers you up from the very beginning, you know. So I think in that sense, I was prepared. And then when I was 13, I left home to, to become a Catholic priest. That's what I wanted to do. It was common in those years to do that kind of thing in a Catholic family. But leaving home at 13 was not easy. I'm still homesick. You know, I still feel it. Mm. And uh uh, but on the other hand, it took me uh, away from a small, you know, a small uh, environment into a, the world, the big world, mm -hmm. and to the world of ideas and study and books and all of that. And so I think it was probably worth the pain. Mm -hmm. And I stayed with that until, uh, well, for 13 more years. And then one day woke up and thought that, well, this is over. I don't feel that mm -hmm. I'm, this is what I'm to do anymore. So mm -hmm. I left. And eventually got a PhD in religious studies, which I love. Study of world religions and mythology and ritual and the arts from that point, deep point of view, all of that. And uh, I met, I, I studied uh, Jung, Jung's, uh, the very first day I was at Syracuse University uh, for this uh, study, I was assigned the complete works of Jung. That's 20 volumes, you know, it's mm. pretty heavy. And But I got through it. I read through it. And before I left Syracuse, I read it again. So I felt pretty secure in my knowledge of Jung from that. And then I met James Hillman, who was a Jungian analyst, who was moving in his own direction, taking Jung a few steps further. And a brilliant guy in himself, tremendous. And we were very close friends. So um, then I decided I, I became a therapist. And I decided to write about my experience. I felt, you know, I don't think other therapists are doing this the way I do it. So I thought I'd write about not the therapy so much, but a general sense of how to care for your soul. Yeah. And uh, that's so the book Care of the Soul gave me a life. 
Yeah. I'm, I'm, oh man, there are uh, so many directions I want to go, but I, I want to come back to your experience as a, a Catholic monk. So you said, so you were 13 when you left home for schooling. So a seminary school or some, some kind of training. Yes. Yes. When did you actually step into an order of, of, of being a monk in, in Catholicism? Well, well, I'll try to describe that. Um, being studying for the priesthood is one thing; being a monk is another. Yeah. So uh, the people, the priests and nuns at the church and school where I grew up, were in this order. They didn't exactly, technically, call themselves monks, but the life was really mm -hmm. monastic. Mm -hmm. And uh, so. When I joined at 13, I was entering this monastery as well as studying for the priesthood. Wow. Did other things. And the lifestyle in mm -hmm. high school for me was, uh, I'd say, 75% the monk's life. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, what a, what a, what a period of life. Uh, are, are you familiar with Bill Plotkin's work, Nature and the Human Soul? Yes. yes uh -huh. You know, I, I, I love his work. Um, I, I think of 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 the this developmental stage of adolescence, a time when when fire is our gift yeah. to the community is fire. You know, our sexuality is coming online. Yeah. Our we're we're in treat. We're our our locus of focus is our peer group, right? Who am I? Trying to find who I am, and and it's, I'm fascinated. You're entering a monastic lifestyle. Well, help me. How was that for you in your teens? Was it, was it, how was that for you? Well, I think the, all first, that? the first thing was that what, part of what inspired me, the main thing that inspired me to do this was my observing the priests. I, I really liked them and I liked mm. what they were doing. Mm. I thought that's what I want to do. So I was really fired up by that. Mm. And then the young men that I liked in my school Many of them were going off to be to do the same thing. Mm. And I wanted to share that with them. I figured these mm. are the best guys I know, and they're heading off to do this life. And I thought I'd want to do that too. So I was fired up, and my parents couldn't talk me out of it. Mm. They tried, but they couldn't. Did they they did try? Did your father what, yeah. what what role did your father play in all of this? My father was not as strong as my mother in in, in this particular moment. He's very strong in my life, but uh, in this particular moment, I think he he wanted to just support. He always supported me what I wanted to do, and uh, I think he had some concerns, but he didn't. It wasn't so strong. My mother was really worried about me going off at that age, and she said, "That's fine, but why don't you wait till you finish high school?" And I couldn't imagine waiting four years. I really wanted. To do that. <laughs> wow. So. Yeah. Um, I'd say my dad was always, always supportive of me. Um, he was a wonderful man. Uh, and uh, he didn't object uh, himself. He didn't object himself. And he supported me all the way. Mm -hmm. I mean, verbally, consciously supported me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I was around that age, I think at 16, I, I graduated high school. I just turned 17 within days of graduating high school. And then I went to a, a very technical college, um, Air Force. I got a scholarship by, for the Air Force and they paid my way five years at university and then five years active duty. So I, I led a bit of a monastic lifestyle, but through the military, through the, 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 the discipline, the rigid structure 
even women. I mean, my college, college I went to, men outnumbered women five to one. You know, I, there was a lot of abstinence forced in my situation. You know, I did. I well, I didn't sign up for it. I didn't know what I was signing up for. But, but I'm curious how how did that experience then? I mean, it's such a, 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 a it's such a, a what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, a really special, unique time in a, in a person's life, that adolescent stage, early, you know, the yeah. onset of adulthood. How, how did that help you? What did you learn in, 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 at the monastery and that experience that helped m- begin to mature you into manhood, if it did at that time? Well, my dad told me once that he was very slow to grow up. He was, and it's true, he died at 100 and he was, he was like a kid in some ways, even mm. at a, he had this strong mm. in him, youth spirit in him. Uh, and I have it too, and I had it then. So I was like a child. I didn't know what I was doing. Mm. Uh, I feel when I look back on it, when I look on the long uh, stream of my life, that was uh, very unconscious, that part of my life. Mm. But it was full of, I was being, I've pushed in some direction, it seems. You know, I was moving yeah. in the direction, but I had no idea what I was doing. Mm. And when I got there, I, I loved, I, I learned to love to read and to study. You know, study is a big part of the monk's life. And I learned to really love to study things, mm-hmm. not things I didn't like. I only, I only learned to, I only wanted to study things I really enjoyed and had a feel for. But um, I really learned that. Like even now, I still have my books with me close by. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's a, that's something I picked up right away in the monastery. Um, another yeah. thing I picked up, I think, was uh, was an appreciation of different kinds of men. We're talking about men mm-hmm. here. Um, I was it was an all male environment, and there were so many different kinds of people there, and I got close to them. I don't remember having any trouble with any of them really. They were wonderful people, wonderful mm-hmm. young men with me, and um, but uh, they were all individuals, mm-hmm. strong individuals, and some of them didn't. You know, rub the the, uh, the the people in charge, rub them the wrong way. You know, they uh-huh. weren't, they didn't look like real candidates for what they uh-huh. had. Uh-huh. So they left one by one. And I think we, I started with a class of 35 and after four years ended up with maybe 10. Mm. So, uh, you know, it was a process like that. And I, uh, I learned a lot about, uh, as I say, the different ways in which men are yeah. and i i loved it you know i loved them i i enjoyed wow. it and uh, i but i was i was sort of innocent and i don't think i saw some of the things going on you know i don't i just my eyes were shielded mm. from all that and i just plugged ahead in my own that's so fascinating. Now, the, the, see, I, I had a very direct, almost opposite experience. I mean, going into the military, going into a, a university, a male-dominated university. I came out of that experience at 26. I didn't. I wasn't conscious of this, but I, I hated men. Oh, I came wow. out of that really not liking men, or at least not feeling safe around men, not feeling like I could be myself around men, not respecting men. I, I had so many judgments of of men coming out of that. My my you know, from 17 to 26. Oh man, I was mad at the world. I was mad at God. God was a man as far as I knew and screw that guy. You know, what are you up to here, buddy? (laughs) What are you doing? Oh man, I was a wreck coming out. So I'm, I'm really touched. I'm really, I'm, I'm grateful that you had that experience that, that I, I, 
can imagine how well that served you in the years to come as all the work that you would do, certainly with women, but but also with men. I, there, I'm curious about the fusion. I'm very interested in how like a seemingly opposing disciplines or ideas come together to create something new. And you, over the course of your lifetime, I said this earlier, you've been a Catholic monk, a university professor, a psychotherapist. How have those three disciplines like merged inside of you and, and shaped how you view and approach the world? There's one more I should add. Uh, when I was in my 20s, I was known as a musician. That was that was That's my idea. Right. Yes. So, you, you have a degree in musicology. I do. I have I have I studied music that way, and I I studied composition mainly, and I I love that. I love that that approach to music. And so um, that's been a big part, too. Uh, I'd say that what what it's come to, I thought where you might be headed, is that right now, if you ask me what I am, I have no idea. And I kind of like that. I don't want to be anything. I don't want to be in any kind of a closet or a, a, a batch, you know, a bucket. I'm not, uh-huh. I don't really fit in any way. Uh, I do psychotherapy. We call it that. I understand it in its, you know, in its mm. deep original terms, what that is. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I, as I do therapy and as I teach and lecture, I'm also always a musician. I am uh, always a psychologist and a theologian and uh Mm. So all of it fits together, and I really don't know what to call myself. I, I don't know, really. Well, it's such a beautiful segue into emptiness. I mean, you're, you're, the book that you've just come out with, I think in the last few months, right? It's just released. Yes, in May. Last in May. One. The yeah. Eloquence of Silence, Surprising Wisdom in Tales of Emptiness. I I took this to a, a men's retreat that I just went on for my men's group. I've been part of a men's group for four years of, of just you know beautiful, strong, thoughtful, sensitive, intense, and and opinionated. You know, very different men. I love my brothers, and I don't agree with them on many things. But but it's it's a beautiful container that we get to get in and kind of do do respectful conflict and and love up on each other. And it's just a, it's a beautiful thing. And I brought your book to a, a retreat we had recently in Sedona, and I, I read some of the passages uh, from your book. And I you know what you what you just shared about. I, I, these aren't necessarily the words you just used, but I, I not wanting to be labeled anything, not wanting to be known as like this is what I am. I'm str- something, you know. I oh okay. Men love freedom. I mean, women love it too, but but men have this particular fascination, ambition, you know, in the, in the, in the world of sexual polarity, masculine and feminine polarity, you know, the, the masculine value we're taught is freedom and men will die for freedom. And you say something in your book, emptiness as a pathway to liberation. It's not a direct quote, but you, you make the connection between emptiness and liberation, which is freedom. And you take it a step further by saying it is a doorway to meaning. And I feel that deeply in in your book. I feel the liberation kind of in my body as I as I read through. It's there's something profoundly calming 
and and enjoyable and nourishing contemplating emptiness even what you just shared i don't want to be i don't know what i am well there's so much freedom in that but can you can you take us into that more because for for most men that would sound completely ludicrous and insane how could that possibly that sounds entrapping actually <laughs> to not know what i am to not be the boss have the money whatever have all this content Walk walk us through emptiness as a pathway to liberation, right? The the relationship between emptiness, liberation, and meaning. Well, there are many approaches to that. Uh, One that comes to mind is that in everything we do, we have a lot of static around us. I mean, there there uh, for example, if you get excited about a group, like like you're saying, that sounds terrific and full of life. But some people join a group and they find themselves identified so much with the group, they don't have the freedom to be themselves. That would be an example how of how that particular experience of that group is not empty. Empty means, in some cases, it means a lot of things. In some cases, it means not being so attached, not being moved by belief so much as maybe insight or, you know, something not so strong and thick as belief and really joining. You don't join so much as maybe you become part of, which is a very subtle difference, but I think it is a difference. So there are many things we do. I, I think everything we do uh, requires some emptiness in order to be free, not to be stuck on some person or some group or some idea or some organization. So many of us are stuck on one of these things, and that that doesn't allow us to be free. And I, I, I hear in that the, the climate that we're living in, because even in my even in my men's group, we can be tempted. There's a temptation that I think you know some of us are, are buying into maybe a little more than others. That 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 okay, we need to. Who are we? What is our identity? What do we all agree on? What are what are what are the, especially in the political climate today? There's this there's this belief. There's this pervasive belief that we've got to take a side. We have to be clear about what we stand for. And I, I'm not necessarily sure that that's wrong. In a sense, uh, I tend to not use right and wrong anyway. That just confuses things for me. But um, <clears throat> help me again. Like, how do we how do we cultivate emptiness in a in a society that is clamoring for for make up your damn mind? As an example, yeah. what I what I hear from people, I'm, I'm getting a lot of feedback on this book. I haven't had so much in many years, so I think this is touching. Some people, you know, the idea they they grasp it immediately. Mm-hmm. I thought it would have we'd have problems with that, but they don't. They grasp the idea immediately. Yeah. And uh, so I would say that um, one thing I've always said about caring for your soul is that if you really do it, you're going to be eccentric. You're going to be odd. Yeah. You won't fit in. Mm. You can't because it's a soulless world we live in, essentially. Mm. Not entirely, but, you know, to a large extent. And how can you adjust to that world and be part of it and still be yourself? You can't. Mm. So there has to be some tension between you and the world around you. And maybe they won't get you. Uh, and as a writer, I feel it, you know, if they don't, I I really put myself into my the books I write. And in the, the last few that I've written, I really did make, really, I thought I did a good job. I, they, I really, I, I think the books are good, but no one has read them. Uh, you know, so I have this struggle with the yeah. culture I'm in because yeah. I feel that I'm living in a world yeah. that's separate from them, from that. 
Yeah. And there are, it's, I do have, a, I've had a following the whole time, but yeah. I mean, generally speaking, the, yeah. the world doesn't accept, doesn't get it, doesn't yeah. get me or maybe, I, I don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah. At any rate, I think that I, what I have to do is keep being myself, which is to be a bit odd. Yeah. I really see myself as odd. You know, I feel myself as odd. Mm. I'm not, that's just, that's not a throwaway sentence. Yeah. yeah. Something yeah. to say to people who want to be free. You have to see yourself as not really fitting in. If you fit in, you're in the wrong place. You know, yeah. there's, some, there's a problem with that. And it's the same with this idea of emptiness. If you fit in too easily to organizations or to the culture you're in, that means you probably need some emptiness. You got to let go of some of it. That's part of emptying, to let go, you know, to say, okay, I've had this identity for a long time. I've joined this group for a long time. It's time to say go. I'm not going to do it anymore. Yeah, you, you use a term in your book, uh, empty marriage, an empty marriage. And I was really struck by that passage because I, so I, I specialize in relationship coaching. You know, I've been working with couples for about almost 10 years now. And I'm, I'm married myself uh, with my wife for eight years. She's also, she's a a marriage and family therapist and does relationship coaching as well. So I'm, I'm steeped in that, that work and, um, your take us into empty marriage. Cause a a lot of people will immediately hear empty marriage and they'll think that what a horrible thing. There's no love there. There's no, (laughs) there's no connection there. They're not having a good time, et cetera. Yet yet, yet, you you turn that on its head. Take us into that. I think first of all, just as a basis, um, you have to understand that the word emptiness as I'm using it comes from Zen Buddhism and from Taoism, where it's a principle, a spiritual principle. And it's a very, it's a highly uh, defined idea. There are long, long books written about it from centuries ago. So what I'm doing here, I'm not talking about the modern idea that life is vacant or doesn't, you know, where you feel that you're empty. You know, you don't have, nothing is happening. That's not it. That's more the symptomatic form of what I'm talking about. They're related actually, but that would take us a while to get to. But um, this idea of marriage then, Seems uh, Hillman used to talk, my friend uh, Hillman used to talk when, when we gave lectures together. I remember very well being in New York once lecturing at a church. He was talking about Aphrodite and I was talking about the Marquis de Sade. And it was not, it was odd to be talking about these things in this church. But he gave a talk where he was on fire trying to say that relationships and marriages are in the wrong place when they are based on a fusion of the people. Mm. That was his word. A fusion. It's like we're too tight. And we imagine marriage to mean, okay, I give myself everything to this other person and I'm identified now that way. And he thought that was the thing that was really interfering with happy marriages. Now, if you take that idea, at least a little, at least somewhat, moderately anyway, um, what it, a fusion in marriage then needs some space, emptiness. It needs some space. It needs the, uh, uh, we have to be able to see that when we marry somebody, that part of what we're doing is we are giving this other person the space to be who they can be. So we're giving them an empty space. We're giving them emptiness, which probably other people haven't given them. I bet their parents haven't given them them much emptiness. Parents don't get that yet. I hope they will one day, but that's not 
part of parenting these days. So um, I think when it comes to marriage, people automatically think, well, I'm getting into something that where I won't have any space. And uh, there's a passage in, in my book about from the Tao Te Ching about having windows and doors. Yes, I love that. I love that passage. Yeah, I like it too. I've been living living with that for a long time. So that's what I'm saying. It's okay, give some windows and doors to your partner. You know, make sure they have a door to get to be able to get away from you for a while or to get away from your expectations of them or your demands on them or your ways and habits or whatever. You, you know, understand they need a door. <laughs> hundred percent. You know, I'm, I'm laughing. It's just yesterday. Uh, my wife and I, my wife has started a new, a new fitness uh, regime, which she's really lit up about and excited about. And, uh, we've tried to, she's tried to take me with her to the gym a few times and do the workout together. And I go to the gym. I do, do my, I'm into my own fitness. I want to be healthy, all that, but we're a disaster together when it, when it, when it comes to trying to do these kinds of things together, we just move through stuff very differently. Even we've, we've tried to work together. I mean, we're in the same field, essentially. We've, we've tried to create things together and look, it's magic when we, when we, when we create it, but it's, it's torture moving through it. And even so just yesterday we decided, look, we're never going to work out again together. It just doesn't work. We need the space she needs, I love how you, that language of, of the, the door, the window to, 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 to leave and go do her thing free from whatever challenges I might bring to her, to her experience. If I'm, you know, fused with her, <laughs> you know, efficiency and, and doing things together would say we should work out together, but it, it's not good for our marriage actually. And, yeah. and so, you know, giving the, that's one thing she and I, I think have done really well. Even when we travel, we're going to Scotland for three weeks this summer, we go to Ireland often together. And I will, I will, there, there are days where I'll just take the car and I'll go and she'll stay at whatever hotel or bed breakfast and she'll have a day to herself. I'll have a day of adventure that she wouldn't want to go on. And I wouldn't want to stay at the hotel. And it's, it's really so healthy for our our marriage and and also thomas i'm i'm aware to emptiness of 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 thinking i know what is going on here i mean how many times have i gotten in trouble for thinking i know what is happening in this moment with with my wife i know what she needs i know what we need i know what's going on i mean speak to that for a moment because i think a lot of a lot of men especially we 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 don't realize how much damage or at least disconnection we cause by by the fullness of our thinking. Yes, uh, uh, there are several passages that I, I, I might mention just for people listening to us that Please. this book is a collection of about of 30 stories and passages from writers uh, about emptiness, different aspects of emptiness. And I make a a, a comment or a reflection on it. Uh, I don't explain it. I just have a reflection. Mm -hmm. on it. And so uh, many of these passages that I chose for this uh, book are about an empty mind, because that's really something that's important to us. For example, there's one I like. I don't know if other people will enjoy it as much as I do. Samuel Beckett, who's a wonderful playwright, Irish playwright, um, who uh, wrote Waiting for Godot, but he also wrote this book called Murphy. It was a novel. And it describes this main character as having a, that his mind was a hermetically sealed 
spear. Uh, and it was, it's kind of a funny, you know, it's, it's a comic view of, of this person. And he describes him pretty much as, as having an empty head. And I use that as one of my stories or passages because I like that idea that we have to know our own ignorance. That's something else that was taught by a theologian I love, which is Nicholas of Cusa. And he wrote a book called The Idiot, uh, which is interesting. Uh, this is in the 15th century, he wrote a book called The Idiot, saying that that's what we need to be. We need to be idiots in a certain way. We have to know what we don't know and don't pretend that we know more than we know and really be, be comfortable with our ignorance. With, and be able to say, oh, I don't know that and answer to a question. I don't know the answer to that. Or I don't really know what's going on here. I think that's a good statement to beginning to make yeah. uh, a couple. You could say, instead of launching right into what's wrong with what the other person, you could say, you know, I don't know what's going on here. So I guess I'll have to just explore that and dig into it and see what's happening. It's so, yeah, my, my wife, uh, she loves it. When I say, I don't know, I mean, loves it. She lights up because <laughs> my sickness is knowing, thinking I know, you know, <laughs> I, 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 that's the, that's my temptation to always think I know what's going on here. We, we call it, I'm pre-knowing. I, we, we, we did this thing a couple of years ago with a friend of mine realized he, he, he would walk into a room and he was, he was pre-annoyed. Right. He was just pre-annoyed. So he knows he, he's aware that he's carrying the, the condition of being pre-annoyed. It doesn't matter what's happening. Right. It's going to annoy him. My wife is pre-overwhelmed. You know, uh -huh. she's just immediately overwhelmed. And, it, and I'm, I'm pre-knowing. Right. You know, I, I know what's going on here. And that, that, that never serves me. It really no. just gets in the way. And so I think, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm especially moved by, you know, emptiness is the medicine that I need. Yes, and it has to be uh, sought in a particular way. Uh, in the work that I do, I don't know if it's the same for you, uh, I would look for a way to deepen that uh, pre-knowing. In other words, it's, if it's a symptom, it means that it has, you know, getting in the way, it means that uh, there must be a better way to do that instead of getting rid of it. Saying there must be a better way to do this pre-knowing. I can imagine that you could do that more substantively. You know, you could really mm. prepare yourself to be when you're walking into a situation to have thought it through. That's a pretty good pre-knowing. Mm. And that might be a better tonic for the problem of pre-knowing than trying yeah. to get. But in in that case, you're going to empty it anyway, because it's as a complex, as a kind of a psychological complex. Mm. That means there's no emptiness around it. And uh, so it could work either way. I would say you could you could work at that by saying, I'm going to try to find how to loosen up this pre-knowing. I'm not going to get rid of it, but I want to have more space in it make, it, make it something that is tolerable, that I can enjoy and other people can enjoy and benefit from. Yeah, know? like I can use it for good. Like I, I, I'm, yeah, immediately, yeah. I'm immediately thinking I can, <clears throat> and, I, and I'll do this sometimes, but I've I like actually making this a practice. This could actually be a really good practice for me. I already know that I don't know what's going on here. I could use yeah. my pre-knowing to remind me that I don't know. <laughs> I like that one. That's a very yeah. good approach. Oh, that could be really many, helpful. There are many things you could do, but yeah. that's really like that, that. That works quite well. 
It does. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take that practice on. That's a, that's a good one. That excites me. Yeah. I can use, that's a, it's a, it's a disposition I have. Let me use that in a way that, that serves. Um, so that's great. That's helpful. Thank you. You're listening to men this way. I'm your host, Brian Reeves. I trust you're feeling inspired by today's conversation. And I want to cut in real quick and ask you a question. Are you a man in a relationship that's struggling? Maybe your partner ain't happy and you don't know what she really wants from you or how to give it to her. Maybe you're not happy and no matter what you do, you just don't know how to make things better. And do you want to make things better? Well, if you're thinking, yeah, to any of those questions, then you need to know about my new free training for men ready to create a truly thriving, intimate relationship, even when you're struggling. In this free training, I teach you the three key pillars of intimacy that you must learn to embody if you want to shift from the relationship sucking to finally unlocking the freedom, desire, and passion both you and your partner crave. And that is possible for you. And this isn't some stupid platitude. Like, this is real. I've been coaching men, women, and couples for over 10 years now. And I'm also married to my lovely bride of eight years. I know the mistakes we men make. I know the misunderstandings that trip us up. I know how our always good intentions too often just get us in trouble. And I know what you can do and say instead of the things you normally do and say that could actually help you start to fulfill your partner's deepest desires without losing yourself or sacrificing what really matters to you in the process. I know what she needs from you on a deeper level that will help her feel safe so she can more fully open herself to you. I know you're probably dying to end whatever stubborn conflicts you keep having. Or maybe you avoid conflict and you're finally seeing that doesn't work either. I know how to help you end unnecessary conflict and do conflict in skillful ways so that you can reliably create safety and trust that ultimately results in more peace and ease and freedom and connection for both of you. If your sexual relationship is stagnant or non-existent or somehow just not deeply satisfying to you both, and you want to know how to consistently foster affection and physically, emotionally, and even spiritually fulfilling sex, then do this. Go watch my free training video at training.elevaterelationship.com. This link will be in the show notes for this episode. It's also on my website. Seriously, if you're a man who is genuinely ready to thrive in intimate relationship, watch my free training video, The Three Secrets to a Thriving Relationship, even if you're currently struggling. The link is training.elevaterelationship.com. Again, training.elevaterelationship.com. It's less than 20 minutes. It's free, and it could totally change the relationship game for you. All right, let's pick up where we left off with today's guest on Men This Way. There's a, a story, an, I, I, yeah, a collection of stories. A, anyone listening, uh, get get Thomas's book, The Eloquence of Silence. It's such a, a, a beautiful, yeah. What I love about your book, Thomas is, is you can just re read one chapter and they're very, sh they're short, but it's the kind of book you can read that. And then, and then don't read anything else. Just sit with it, meditate on it. Let it, let it marinate in you. Let it carve you out over the course of a day or some time. I mean, you could read it front to back, 
but it's it's one of those experiences that that deserves to be savored and 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 slowly metabolized and there's one story that I, I well there's so many but there's one that just a question that arises for me now it's the story of the master bowman the archer who shoots oh yeah invisible or unseen arrows and you say something in your reflection on that you you talk about the art of not being lured into action oh i love that that really in a world where we're all exhausted i'm exhausted i i read not long ago that the average age of burnout is like 32. oh my gosh that's that's insane because we're we're just getting started in our professional yeah. careers at 32 but that, that most of us are burned out by that time i'm i'm 49 i'm tired yeah, yeah. I'm tired. but the art of not being lured into action uh please say more about that in this culture within which we're obsessed with action what what are you pointing at there yeah there's something about modern life i think it has to do with the pragmatism and and the literalism of our technology and scientific way of looking at things uh that when you see a problem the first thing you have to do is solve it you know that's that's not a good idea to leap into a solution before you've thought about it and in order to not leap into it you have to give yourself some space and time and just say oh well that's interesting. I want to think about that for a while. Uh, that's not a bad statement to keep in mind in your arsenal of, of things to say, because you need the space to be able to hold some issue that is there and 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 reflect on it. We don't understand the importance of reflection. Uh, just the, this this common idea of counting to ten. You know, it's it means okay. Don't immediately leap into a solution. Wait for a while. You may not even know what it is you're you're trying to fix. And maybe it doesn't need fixing, and maybe it needs a much wiser kind of fixing than you think. But we don't work that way. We rush right into a solution. Yeah, especially again in in, in marriage. I mean, it, it's it's almost a a, a a common trope or cliche these these ideas that that you know, man, stop trying to fix your wife's problems. And yet, over and over and over. I think that's one of the, the fundamental flaws that we we or mistakes that we men could especially continue to make is my partner has something that she's upset about. I immediately need to fix it. So I'm immediately stepping into action when w- what would be a better practice in this regard, Thomas? Uh, well, any kind of uh, pause is not a bad idea. Anything at all to pause. So you might say, let's go out and go for a walk or a swim or uh, play a game of something, you know, uh, do something that is unrelated to the issue. And that gives you space. It's empty. There's no purpose. Mm. One of the things I say in this book is you have to be very careful that your emptiness is empty. Mm. You know, you, mm-hmm. it's so easy to get full up about emptiness. And mm. so in that case, you'd have to say, look, I have, not, I have nothing in mind. Let's just go and do something. Mm. And you do something that's not related to the issue. Uh, yeah. And and you don't make it a, 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 a point. You say, okay, from now on, we'll, we'll pause and play this game. No, that's mm. then it's no longer empty. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. When I, when I, um, when I've worked with couples, 
I, I realize that what I'm what I'm really helping couples do is not solve money issues or sexual issues or or childcare issues or or even arguments. I'm helping them connect. I'm really just helping them at the core of it is is helping them learn how to create and and maintain or come back to connection when they feel disconnected. Like that's at the core of it. And one of the things that that when I give them I give them connection practices, it's I, I always tell them it's it's not productive time. You're not solving any problems. You're not figuring out any logistics in this this 30 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever it is that you're you're just connecting. There's no point to it. If there's a purpose to it, if there's an intention, if you're trying to get somewhere, uh, it's probably not going to be very connecting. And so I I love your the invitation to invite emptiness, to cultivate emptiness. even in the relationship. And it doesn't have to be absolute, like, oh, I have to have have an empty relationship. What is that? (laughs) No, dosage is what I like. You put a dose of emptiness. You you inject a little emptiness in what you're doing. Uh You you don't have to have a revolution in your life. We can't do that. It doesn't work. But we can take a little bit of emptiness and say, maybe I could just relax and and just not do anything for a minute, even though I'm compelled to do something. I want to fix this relationship. I want it to be better. What if you just sat there? Like yeah. I think it's, it's what you're saying. You sit there without any any purpose. Yeah. It's, by the way, I'm really tempted to write a book. I, probably, I know I won't. Against the idea of purpose. Oh, against <laughs> the idea. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I want to hear more about that. That's fascinating. <laughs> Can you just just say say a few words? Summarize, summarize that book for us. <laughs> I think that it's. I think that uh, purpose is a very spiritual idea. See, spirit is great and it's wonderful in relation to the soul, but it's different. And spirit tends to like perfection and having solutions to things. The soul just lives, just sort of lives, mm. just there. And it's life. It's alive, but it doesn't. It's not aiming for anything at all. It just just there. Mm-hmm. A home is the best example of soul. You know, you go to your home, you're not doing it really for a purpose. You're not going home for a purpose as much as being home. Mm-hmm. So if you can do that, mm-hmm. the purpose is more coming from another place. And I guess it has its point. You know, you can see the point of it. But really, you don't need that, especially the emphasis that you hear around in certain yeah. quarters of how important it is to have this purpose. Seems to me that what's much more important is to read the signs and to listen for voices of inspiration, uh, to be able to move as a listener rather than someone who has a purpose. That's a kind of a forceful thing to resolve your purpose. But what if you're someone who is who is so uh, composed that you can you can sense in you sense this is a time to move to a different locality. This is a time to maybe to make a big shift in my work mm. practices. Yeah. Or maybe something very small. Maybe this is the day I should stop eating candy, you know. Yeah. It's, it's paying attention to those. I think those voices guide us. And so listening to me is much more important than having a purpose. Mm. I, you know, my, my book, Choose Her Every Day or Leave Her, that would uh, over my shoulder here. Um, I think. That was born out of a. I took myself to the woods, uh, the mountains uh, east east of 
Los Angeles, uh, up in Idlewild for, for five days. I knew I needed, it's so interesting. I never, I never saw it through this filter, but I knew I needed, you know, I always use the word spaciousness or just, just time away, uh, solitude. And, but I, but in this particular trip, I, I took, I did a kind of a mini vision quest. I would, I would take myself to the woods and just sit in one spot for three or four hours, not journaling, not, not writing, not reading, not, you know, distracted in any way, just, just sitting there, almost forcing myself to be bored. And cause I have done longer vision quests in the past, but my, the, the idea, like the clarity rushed out of me in that practice Oh, here's the book. I, I I don't think the book would have arisen. Would have it wouldn't be a thing in the world if I hadn't taken myself on, on that that put myself into that emptiness. Yeah, exactly. So what's the what? Please, sorry, go ahead. No, we all have to do that. Especially the model for that is the artist who has to be able to be open to inspiration. As a writer, I feel it's essential to be able to. Uh, uh, be available for inspiration. That's yeah. that's what Emily Dickinson says. You know, you have to available. Uh, be available for the heavenly guest when he comes. Uh, that inspirer, the thing that inspires. So uh, there's a difference then between going on what is, you know, full of like, you know, big orchestra vision quest and having your own trip into the woods. Yeah. You know, you don't have to make it into something. When you make it something, you, you it's not maybe it's not empty enough. Yeah, yeah. Um uh Thomas, how do you cultivate emptiness in your life? And 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 I'm 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 curious to especially to see this through the filter of of again a, a very overworked, busy culture. So many demands. I mean, here you are now, you're promoting a book. You're I mean, you you've been surely uh busy in your own way throughout your lifetime. How do you cultivate emptiness in your daily life? Well, one thing when you mention that example is emptiness doesn't mean you don't do things. You know, it's it's how you do them. And uh, you make sure there's, as I say, a dose or a rim of emptiness around what you're doing. So here I am talking to you. Yeah, I mean, I have to carve this time out to be with you today. And I have to say no to other people that want me to do various things. I really like the idea of, I really like talking to you. And this is something I want to do. Mm. I, I, it's, not a, it's not a burden and it's not artificial. It's me. It's what I do. And uh, I'm, very, I'm very happy. I, I, I decided years ago that I was going to really get involved in uh, promoting my books. I was going to get involved in that. I wasn't going to sit back and wait for other people to do it. I was really going to do it. And I wasn't going to feel above it or anything like that. I was going to really get into it. And I can't tell you how many flights I've taken when when we were doing book tours by plane. Uh, I did that for 20 years, I think, you know, and I don't know how many, how many miles of planes I've had and experiences. Uh so it was a lot, but I never felt that that was not an empty life. I could still do it because it's how you do and what your intention is. And, and uh, you know, you got to enjoy life. And if you can enjoy life, then I think the emptiness will be there. That uh, enjoy, the joy of what you do will, mm. will help create the emptiness around it. Because what is really chases emptiness in this sense away is uh, uh, obligation not not wanting to do what you do 
having a conflict about how what your life is, what you do, wishing it were different, and uh, all those things that come along, all those thoughts that come through. You've got to empty your mind of that stuff in order to just be with what you're doing. That's why I have this quotation from Shunryu Suzuki in the book, uh, in his book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, where he discusses uh, nothing. He has a chapter called Nothing and describes how... Uh, his ideal is just to sit, you know, it's not, and the example he gives is a frog, a frog just sits. Mm. And, uh, mm. and you can say, why are you sitting there? You shouldn't be sitting so much. And I think the frog would say, I'm a frog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, years ago, uh, I had a big break from, from work I was doing. I was, I'd been managing uh, bands, uh, one band in particular. And, and as the manager of a band, I don't get a break when the band is on break, I'm booking the next tour. You know, I, I so I mean, probably for three, four or five years, I didn't really get a break. And then the band broke up and all of a sudden I had a huge break. And I remember very distinctly knowing I'm not supposed to just rush into the next thing. I don't really know what to do. And I thought, well, let me, you know, let me study dogs and cats. They seem really skilled at doing nothing, uh, at just sitting and being, and they don't seem too bothered by it. I've never seen a dog fret. Well, I mean, they can get antsy because they have a lot of energy in their bodies, but that's different from thinking they have to be productive or have a purpose. Exactly. Right? See? That's so, right. I think that's true. So it takes a little bit of, um, it takes a, a, a little turn, a little twitching of your imagination to be able to imagine yourself and your life just a little bit differently, mm. where uh, you might say, well, I, I wonder if there's an alternative to feeling pressured constantly to do things. Mm. Is there an alternative to that? I See, I think that uh, another way I would put it is, uh, there's a big difference between being active and being busy. I feel that busyness is a complex, a psychological complex that comes over you, not because you're doing too much, but because of the way you're imagining your life and the world. Yeah. So you can be you can be very active in your life and be empty. You can do it. You can bring emptiness into everything you do, but still be very active. But if you're busy and feeling overwhelmed by the busyness, that sounds to me like something that needs to be emptied out a bit. Yeah. You, in in your book, in one passage, you highlight the example of you're waiting for, uh, at a restaurant for a friend to arrive for dinner and they don't show up. Right. Most, most of us, our initial reaction is to be annoyed, be upset, be frustrated, need to do something about it, tell them never talk to them again, whatever it is, whatever that we have to, it's like, we have to fill that emptiness with a reaction or some course of action that, you know, maybe in that helpful or skillful. And I, I love that you, you call that to our awareness that this is a, this is because, because life is showing up with empty moments constantly. And I, I think that's a great gateway for us to cultivate emptiness, even you know, I have some friends that have young children, babies, and man, they, their lives feel anything but empty. But at the same time, there are hours that like a friend of mine will sit with his his newborn daughter and there's not a lot going on that he can do. And right there is 
I think a gateway. What, what do you say about that? A, a gateway to to a practice or an embrace of emptiness. Yeah, I like your word gateway for it. Um, what, what I'm thinking is that this whole book of mine was based on my observation over many years that the spiritual traditions uh, interested in emptiness would focus on a very concrete object that was actually empty, like a pot might be empty. Uh, and there's this great story I think that I have in my book about the ring on your finger. Um, mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, the person wants to have a ring so that he could remember the friend he's leaving. And the friend says, look, how about if uh, I keep my ring and you just look at my empty finger and every time you see that, you'll think of me. It's it's like incorporating emptiness into your life. (laughs) But it's like looking at the finger, the empty thing, uh, inspires you to imagine and a gateway, have a gateway to a, a more substantial kind of emptiness. Yeah. So what I'm saying is, okay, you're, you've met, you've agreed to meet at a restaurant, and I, I've been in this situation. I bet you have, where you're, you're waiting, and uh, you all you can see is this empty chair across from you, yeah. because nobody's there. Somebody should be there, but they're not, and so you just feel the emptiness of that chair. That is an opportunity to have a little meditation on a deeper kind of emptiness. It's like seeing the finger without the ring. It's like you've got here an image that's traditional. It's thousands of years old. You see an empty thing and you transform it in your reflection and in your imagination into this bigger kind of emptiness. Um, And I think that is like, yeah, it's like a gateway. So it's maybe a little practice of being empty and it's uh, not acting out the thing, uh, yeah. of being angry, as you said, angry about your friend not coming. You know, there's no need to be angry. We all get have problems arriving to at our destination sometimes. Life is busy, as you say, and it can happen. So there's no use getting empty, uh, getting angry about it. But it could be a moment of discovery of emptiness. Yeah. When I lead uh, short meditations in some of my men's groups. We'll, we'll do a meditation practice, and one of the things that I'm I'm often calling to their attention is, you know, we're we tend to be we're so busy because we're trying to get all the things done so that we don't have anything to do anymore, right? So we can be in nothing, but we don't want to be in nothing, so we keep we start doing things again, and it's like we we can never escape our busyness because the the very thing we're seeking is the very thing we're terrified of. And so in, in these meditative moments, I'll, I'll, I'll have men, ah, notice how good it feels to do nothing, to be in this moment. And I've never know if, you know, if anyone's really touching that place or if they're freaking out or what's happening necessarily, but it's like, go ahead, please. Could I, could I just uh, tweak that a little bit? Please. I think that it's great. It's like a first stage is to, uh, maybe find a moment of emptiness when you're really busy, you know, yeah. be able to enjoy a moment. But that's a bit literal. So another way of doing it that isn't quite as literal would be to find that space, that emptiness, as you keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. I, I, what comes to my mind is, for example, for many years, I would, let's say, standing in line at a coffee shop. I'm just, I'm not doing anything in particular. I'm just standing there waiting. And I would have this practice of, of, 
and again, I'm seeing it through, through different eyes now, but it was, I would, I would use those moments of, of, to just uh, sort of find the stillness of the moment or find like the, the, the empty, I, again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have used this word before, but there is a, there is a sort of emptiness, a beautiful, uh, help me unpack what, 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 like a practice standing in line at Starbucks. How could I do an empty emptiness practice there? What would that look like? Or what it might have sound like? Well, you could, first of all, you could notice if you're impatient mm. or if you are, your thoughts are about what you have to do next. And it's, that's making you uh, unsettled. Mm-hmm. All the, you see, when, when you don't have emptiness, you're, there's anxiety and there's disturbance. Addiction, the phone immediately comes to the face. Yeah, exactly. I mean, no, nobody just stands in line anymore. It's always phone to face. You know, one of the things we do with emptiness all the time is try to find anything that will fill it up. Yeah. <laughs> anything at all. Yeah. So sometimes people just eat because they're, they're, right. something empty is going yeah. on around them. And the first thing they think of is to eat more. And yeah. that becomes a habit of dealing with emptiness. So the thing might be to, might be to, uh, I would say would be to stand in the line and notice where where you're uh, feeling unsettled and uh, disturbed and use that as your guide of of what to do. Because I don't know what to say, just to give you, say to anybody what you should be doing. I don't know. But you, you could start that way easily. I think that's a good place. Yeah. Start with uh, where your disturbance is and go into that and say, well, Hmm. I'm. Uh, I guess I'm. I'm generally kind of impatient. I want things to be done uh, more quickly. Yeah. I wonder if I could slow things down. What yeah. if I just slowed my life down at this moment yeah. and decided that I'm going to take some time here. I'm yeah. going to be moving slowly right now instead of quickly. Yeah. That might bring you some emptiness suited to that situation. Yeah. What. Well, I- yeah. So, so what I'm hearing in that is, is, is like, note, notice the content, notice what is, f- what's filling the space right now, whether it's my anxiety, my anger, my frustration, my angst to get going. Uh, maybe I'm pissed at the barista for not moving fast enough. Maybe I'm, I've got my, get my phone in my face cause there's something to do and I got to tend to it, <laughs> whatever. Just, I, you know, I remember years ago before phones, I'd go to the bathroom and and I needed something to fill the space. I'd grab the shampoo bottle out of the bathroom and just read the shampoo bottle. It doesn't matter how many times I'd read the ingredients of the shampoo bottle. I would just read it again. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, now yeah. I can read the ingredients on every shampoo bottle in existence on my phone. It's it, it really has to be an intentional desire, I think, to 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 yeah. to cultivate yeah emptiness. Yeah. Yeah. You have to enter. That's a, that's what I think. That That's a, what we're getting at here, I think, is that um, emptiness is not a thing in itself. And there's no rules about it, really. It's it's an individual situation you're in. And you've got to see it. You just have to see your situation and and see maybe how you could empty it. Some. Yeah, yeah. See, I'm using the word kind of in a, the way a Zen Buddhist, I think, might use it now. Where they uh, they just use the word empty to take away something from whatever it is you're doing and leaving a gap instead of because without the gap you're too anxious and they they would like you to live always that way to live your whole life empty so that's why so many people in this world chant the Heart Sutra 
which I have put in my book here, my own kind of translation of it, uh, which is, I think every, it's, it's about, I don't know how many lines, it's about a page and a half or two pages to, to get it out in a book. And I think maybe in every line, the word empty is used two or three times. Mm, wow. It's just trying to say empty this, empty mm, that, empty mm. this, empty that. And uh, finally, at the end of it, just says, gone. Yeah. Liberation. I hear, yeah. I hear, I, I, I viscerally, viscerally feel the, 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 the deepest sense of freedom available inside. Not the pseudo freedom that I gained from having more money or status or a better car, or a faster car, or whatever. But, but, but the deepest sense of freedom in the moment, regardless of what's happening. So this idea of emptiness, then, it, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant to talk about it in just everyday situations. That, I think that's fine. And I, I'm really behind that. That's what this book is about. Mm -hmm. But the, the teachings, the ancient teachings of emptiness really take it to a very refined place. I mean, a very highly spiritual place. Mm -hmm. A place about meaning, the very meaning of your life, and mm. and emptying. Like I was telling, I, I, I talking to some people recently about emptying their notion of God. That the, if anything needs to be emptied, it's God. Not to get rid of God, but mm. to empty. Mm. So there aren't, so, there isn't so much neurosis all around it. Mm. Uh, and that's true of anything. Family, yeah. Yeah. empty your notion of family. Everything yeah. needs that that kind of process that never ends, uh, but that uh, cleans up what you're doing. In fact, that's one of the words for emptiness, catharsis, which means to clean. Mm. You clean something up, and that's part of emptiness. I'm going to change tack here for, to, okay. to, to round out our conversation, but I, I just want to, to, to again emphasize to any any man, any woman, any anyone listening to our conversation, and and you know, we're, we're talking about a, a mysterious subject, emptiness. I mean, it is, it is I think, maybe... The definition of mystery is 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 empty. I don't know what is happening there. Uh, Thomas's book, "The Eloquence of Silence." First of all, it was a beautiful title. Um, I, I shared that. Uh, do you know a man named John Lee? He wrote "The Flying Boy." Um, he wrote a number of books back in the seventies and eighties. You know, I, I I recognize the name, but I don't uh, pull it up right away. But, well, yeah. well, John, John's my therapist. Actually, I work oh, with him wow. here okay. in, in Austin. He's actually going to be a guest on, on my podcast as well. He may already, it may be a past episode, a future episode. I've already recorded it. It's coming out soon. Um, to anybody listening, or it may already be out. I'm not sure yet at the time of this recording, but I shared with him, he's a writer as well. I shared with him, uh, your, your book. And he just immediately that the title, the eloquence of silence was just, you know, just, 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 uh, nectar. Uh, and it is, it's, it's a really beautiful title. Do you know Francis Weller? I do. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've I've had Francis Weller on the podcast a few times. I'm a, I'm just enraptured by his work as well, and and um, uh, you know these are these are you know you Thomas you you men are are elders in 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 a world of sadly too few elders, and so it's it's really a privilege for me to be able to have this conversation with you. And I implore everyone listening get. Thomas's book. It's such a beautiful and 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 you know elegant and, and simple, accessible meditations, reflections on cultivating emptiness as a pathway to to freedom, to liberation, to meaning. And 
Um, well, I, at the end, we'll, we'll talk about where people uh, can, can find your book. I mean, it's on Amazon. It's everywhere that they yeah. can get books, right? Um, we'll, we'll talk about that again. But I want to switch tack a little bit as we, as we round out because, again, you know, I, I didn't coin this language, but there's a lot of olders, not many elders in, in, in people's lives and in many of our lives these days. And so I, I'm curious about some of your journey into, into elderhood. And, and I'd like to, you know, a question that immediately arises for me is, is what's different about you? I mean, you're, you're in your eighties now, is that right? 82. 82. Well, I don't, I, I don't know why this is a compliment, but it, you know, you look, you look great. You look you know, young and youthful. I don't know why that's a compliment. You know, I think it should be a compliment to say that you look like an elder uh, <laughs> anyway, but th there it is. You look healthy and, and vital. Let's, we'll, we'll say that. <laughs> well, I can feel the boyishness. I love that, that boyish quality. You, 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 I, 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 I sense, I get that I am in the presence of, of a true elder and, um, and, and maybe that's part of elder of true elderhood is is maintaining the the boyish part of us that that brings us alive. That's, that's and, a profound truth you just said. Yeah. Profound, yeah. Yes. yeah. But I'm curious. You know, I'm I'm nearing fifty. Things are changing for me. You know, I'm I'm not the same guy that I was even ten years ago. Some some fundamental things are shifting in in very interesting ways. But I'm curious. What what's different about you in your eighties? than than you in your your 40s or 50s like what what's present now that wasn't then or or perhaps the reverse what isn't present now for you that was then um i think i've uh i think i've relaxed quite a bit i feel you know what i, I feel a lot of things uh someone has commented on this with this book that i i don't uh hem and haw i don't say maybe you should think this way or do this i say do it now uh, uh. Uh, i feel my authority and uh, I feel, and that's part of an elder, I guess. Um, I feel my authority, and I uh, not heavy, but I mean, I I feel it's there in my in my work and in my voice and my writing. And um, I feel like now I can write without even thinking. I just can sit down. I don't have to worry about style or voice or anything. I just write. Yeah, it comes out, and uh, that is different. And I really uh, feel I've I've earned it you know it's like it's yeah. been a long time coming to yeah. feel relaxed about all that mm -hmm. and i feel um very good in meeting people who are experts in what they do uh i i feel uh i feel they're equal you know i feel that we are people who uh, have done a lot in our lives mm -hmm. and uh we have that in common, and I appreciate that. I have a different sense of the authors that I quote from history mm. uh, that I feel, I guess my friend Hillman taught me about that, that to see these people, the, the authors, not as uh, sanctioning what I write, but fellow writers who gave their lives to their ideas that they're, they're trying to put there in, in words. And have that empathy with them and that collegiality with them when I quote them. I feel that strongly. Mm. And that's, mm. that's something I don't think I could have felt when I was mm. 40. Wow, that's profound. I, I hear in that, uh, I mean, you know, you're, you're moving towards, I mean, we all are, but you're, you're at a, you're, you've succeeded to, to live long enough to you move, move consciously towards being an ancestor. 
to stepping into becoming one of the ancestors that 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 inform future generations and the next generations. And I, I think it's a great honor. Again, for me, it's a, it's truly an honor to be able to have this conversation with you, Thomas. And and um, uh, to I feel like I'm I'm creating time capsules, you know, in in these podcasts and these episodes. Yeah. That you know, I, I hope that my children. God willing, or at least other people's children, generations will 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 ha- be able to to hear these, refer back to them, and, and hear wisdom, perhaps, for what's to come. What, what do you think that I'm probably worrying about, or you know, any man in his 30s or 40s or 50s that is worrying about that that you know at 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 82, we, we don't need to be worrying about. Or maybe the opposite. Maybe what am I not worrying about that I should be worrying about? <laughs> uh, I think the the thing that uh, has to be let go, this is kind of a big way of saying it, but is to deal with the self, that the self is not as important as you think. Mm-hmm. And it takes a while to discover that, that uh, really you're doing it you're reaching out to the world with your podcasts and other things writing books that's really important uh, to be in the world with who you are so that you don't focus too much on the self Mm. i think that's also something you can bring into marriage where you uh, the self is not really so important and there's one idea this is a big idea but i think i can introduce it now uh, Christianity uses a word for emptying called kenosis. Mm. And uh, what it means is the emptying of the self. So theologically, what it means is that Jesus Christ emptied himself so that his father could do his work through him. Mm. He had to empty himself so that this greater infinite presence could work mm. through. I think that applies to all of us, mm. mm-hmm. that uh, we have to empty that self. So that life itself, or whatever you want to call that thing that inspires us, moves through us, and that we aren't doing our work nearly as much as some power of life is doing the work. And the more you can let that happen, the more effective your work will be, and the more satisfied you'll be with who you are, but you won't have much of a self. It's like when you're talking about, you know, I really appreciate uh, you're saying things like uh, speaking to an elder and feeling an honor and all that, mm-hmm. and using the word wisdom. You know, I can't take that too seriously. Yeah, It's yeah, just yeah. not, on yeah. my side, it's right. fine for you to do that. But on right. my side, right. Right. you know, it's like, you yeah. know, the self is not so important. Uh, I don't, I never refer to myself as an elder, for example, yeah. some people do. But uh, it doesn't have much, much meaning to me because I'm still in the process of yeah. Letting this stuff come through me, and I'm not much, you know. Yeah, I'm not much in that process. I, but what I have accomplished is the possibility of letting something flow through me and go out to the world, and that's really is that is an art, and that is a skill. Yeah. When I'm when I'm living my days well, a prayer that I start off with in the morning is is or it's more of a question. It's an inquiry. Is what does life want to live through me today? And and that when I'm in silence, and I spend a few minutes just in silence and stillness and asking that question, what does life want to live through me today? Sometimes life wants me to take a nap, wants me to rest. Other times it wants me to be in this work, or and that's a you. 
Yeah, I love that you're giving language to to things I've I've been I don't know innately called to and in, in practice of, but I I often don't really know what I'm doing or or why it matters. But it yeah. Let me give you a little story. I won't I won't comment on it. Uh, I'm I'm doing a little work right now on Henry David Thoreau, whom I'm finding to be so wonderful, mm. this wonderful wonderful imagination. And um, one of the things he says among many others, and they're small things that he says, that when you go for a walk, you come, you go to the door of your house and you open the door and you walk. Don't ask which direction to go. Don't stop to decide which direction to go. Just walk. Go outside your door and walk and see what happens. I love it. I, I have one last question, and I, I hope that that this isn't ending us on a on a, on a down note, but I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely curious about your, your response to this. And, and especially given that you, you shared something earlier, right? You, you wrote care of the soul in the early nineties and millions of people read that book and you've read, you, you've written a number of books since, and, and not many people have read some of your, your recent books. Mm-hmm. And I mean, look, the, look at the, the state of the world. I've always been an optimistic person. It's really hard to be optimistic right now for, for humans, for humanity's sake. And, and I, 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 I'm doing my best to do my part to, to help, I don't know, humans maybe just think, think, think in different ways and, and, and expand consciousness, but not in the. You're doing, in, you're doing a lot with what you do. Thank you. And, and, and I, and, you know, I, I wonder, sometimes I experience the world as if like we're, we're just riding a, a tidal wave to our collective doom. There is, <laughs> we're each doing our best to surf the wave and entertain ourselves, you know, maybe entertain others, maybe say a few things along the way that, 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 you know, make people, make people think, but, but doom seems to be an inevitable outcome. I, I mean, it sounds such a dark, a dark thing to, to think of and say, and I, but, but, you know, what, what say you? To, to, to that, to, do you feel like your work hasn't mattered to you? you? There's a beautiful passage where you quote your friend, James Hillman, about uh, we are left in traces. I love that passage. You know, you, a quote you say from is, I hope to leave traces of my reflections on human life in a slew of books and in the passing thoughts of students and friends. I hope to leave traces of my reflections. I love that. That's beautiful. Now, how do you orient towards the state of things and, and your your part? And it's it's do you, do you hear my question in here or my longing? What I'm what I'm yes. what I'm seeking? It's almost hard to articulate. No, I think I know what you're saying. I think I do. Uh, I one one of the things I get uh, my opt- that feeds my optimism is history is where we're coming from. So I remember that, uh, again, I'm reading about Thoreau these days, and he was helping um, blacks coming up from the South go on the Underground Railroad and go through Concord to Canada. It was an important part of that Mm. railroad. And he was the most active person I've read in his biographers in his town of He'd put people in his house uh, against the law and and then help them get to Canada, get on a train. He would go to the train, get on the train with them to go up. He was very active in it. Many, many people in his town 
were totally, absolutely, vividly against him. Yeah. They, they thought he was totally wrong and that he was breaking the law and he should be mm-hmm. caught. And, and they, would, they would threaten him. Mm-hmm. And he knew he could be beaten at best for doing this. Mm-hmm. And then this later, after he died, then his friends like Emerson, they had to deal with the fact that the Civil War was just looming and that the last thing in the world they wanted was like doomsday. So what I'm saying is that every mm-hmm. period of time has its terrible mm-hmm. clouds of disaster hanging mm-hmm. over it. And uh, people, like let's say in the First and Second World Wars who are writers and artists who are working. So I see that, I don't know if there's ever a period where we didn't have uh, insanity all around us and leaders who were infantile, Mm. which is what we seem to have in many instances around the world. I'm thinking world leaders, so many are infantile. There are a lot of great ones, but there are also many infantile, dangerous people here in our country and in the world. And uh, it's, it's the way it's been. If you look and see in our history, the people that have been leaders in our country that were absolutely mindless or dumb, you know, didn't know what they were doing. And it was a threat. So I think we have to understand that the threat is ours. It, it's very big for us. But um, we can we can learn from the past, other people, that we can be creative and we can be positive. And we can, uh, our positive, our optimism comes from life itself. Yes, we can destroy our planet. That can happen. But we still can be optimistic about life as we uh, as we live our life, our version of humanity, our own personal lives. Mm. I think that can be a source of optimism. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That, that, that feels um, just, again, deeply, deeply calming. I think that's the I think what what so many of us are missing without your elders is we we're disoriented. We're misoriented. We're oriented towards things that don't matter or don't serve. That's, that's and true. I think it's one of the great gifts to just be in in conversation, right? Conversation with an elder. I, I'm I'm embarking on a series that I'm calling uh, for this podcast. I'm calling Conversations with Elders, and uh, this is certainly one of those. So it's very orienting to. In, in a deeply satisfying and, and fulfilling way to be in conversation with you, Thomas. So yeah. th- thank you for spending this time with me. Would you, would you finish by sharing one of the teaching stories that you kind of most stands out for you? I, I love your, your stories of Nazaruddin. I'm, I'm familiar yeah, with that, that, that teaching device. That, yeah. The, there's one there that I could, uh, I could find. If I, let's see. I just have to look for a minute to see where it is. And this, about, you know, that you, did you read the one about tigers? Uh, I, the hunting tigers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did. I like that one. Can I do that one? Yeah, that's great. Want me to read one? one? Yeah, yeah, yeah please. One day, the leader in his village asked Nasruddin to go hunting for tigers. Nasruddin felt he had to go, but he didn't want to. When he returned, his friends asked him, how did it go? Excellent, he said. How many tigers did you kill? None. How many did you encounter? None. How many did you see? None. (laughs) Why do you say the hunt was excellent if you didn't see even one tiger? When you're hunting tigers, none is plenty. (laughs) I 
I love it. I, I love the Nezruddin stories. They're great. Yeah. yeah they're, so the, the book is out, The Eloquence of Silence, Surprising Wisdom in Tales of Emptiness. Thomas More. Again, just where can people find the book? Uh, I, I always would suggest if you have a local bookstore, they can order it for you if you if they don't have it. They, many of them will have it because this is distributed widely. But um, that's the best way to, I really want to support uh, local bookstores. Mm-hmm. It's it's so important for writers and authors to have these bookstores. And we have one in our little town uh, that is just so wonderful and mm-hmm. uh, like the, the center of life in the mm-hmm. town. So I, I would suggest supporting them and having a little temple of knowledge or something, keep it in your your area where you live, understand how important it is for your community. Thomas, thank you again for spending this time with me. It's been an honor. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. And I wish you all the best as you go on with your work. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to my guest, Thomas Moore. You can find Thomas at thomasmoresoul.com. Of course, that link and any additional resources will be in the show notes for this episode and also on my website at brianreeves.com slash menthiswaypodcast. Also, remember to go watch my free training for men, The Three Secrets to a Thriving Relationship. The website for that is training.elevaterelationship.com. It's less than 20 minutes and it could totally change the relationship game for you. Training.elevaterelationship.com. Lastly, please go write a review of this podcast right now on your podcast app. Doing so helps me immensely. It helps other people realize that this is a trustable space. And if I read yours in a future episode, I'll hook you up with free access to one of my online courses, which you can learn more about on my website, brianreeves.com programs. I deeply appreciate it. And don't forget to subscribe yourself while you're at it. I'm your thriving life and relationship coach, Brian Reeves, Brian with a Y Reeves. Until soon, keep your head up, your breath relaxed, and your thoughts inspired.